today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The big story, of course, that uh, we have been hinting at for the last little while uh, was the uh, resignation of Finance Minister Bill Morneau, not just resigning from the, uh, the p- portfolio, but uh, resigning his seat as a member of parliament, uh, which is uh, somewhat of a surprise, I guess, to a lot of folks. Uh, there had been rumors uh, for some time now that uh, Mr. Morneau and uh, the Prime Minister were not getting along, uh, differences of opinion, I guess. It's a, a very difficult time for any government right now uh, trying to deal with COVID-19. And uh, being a numbers guy, I, I got to think that part of the reason for this is Morneau just doesn't like the idea of going into huge deficits. Uh, on the other hand, I'm sure that was a point of discussion and debate for an awful lot of them. But uh, he put a brave face on it uh, when he talked to the media yesterday, basically just said it was his time to go. The work that we've done together has been uh, the work of a lifetime for me. It's been something that has been enormously rewarding personally. It's been a real privilege to have this job. But like any job, there's a time where you're the appropriate person in the role and the time where you have to decide when you're not the appropriate person in the role. There has not been a whole lot of comment from, uh, I was going to say his counsel or his uh, colleagues, but I mean, that, that's typical in situations like this, kind of rally around this. We have heard uh, just this morning, as you heard on CHML News and, of course, on uh, CFPL News, on uh, 980 News, that it uh, looks like Christia Freeland, the deputy prime minister, will take over the finance portfolio. She's going to wear a lot of hats around the uh, cabinet table over the next little while. But uh, it probably not much of a surprise uh, to see her get that appointment. Uh there has to be a relationship between the finance minister and the prime minister or the finance minister or the premier, depending on which level of government we're talking about. Uh, if they're not on the same page, th- there's going to be huge problems. We know that. And uh, and we saw that, that, that hand-in-hand working for many, many years, of course, uh, with Paul Martin and John Cretchen, although that didn't end well, uh, and, of course, uh, Jim Flaherty and, and uh, Stephen Harper uh, on the federal scene for many, many years. Uh, and people thought that Morneau and Trudeau had that sort of a relationship. Uh, maybe, you know, there were some concerns about that, but in the troubling times of COVID-19, obviously there was a rift that started to develop that became a chasm and uh, led eventually to the uh, to the resignation of the finance minister. Joining us to talk about this is Mercedes Stevenson. Mercedes, of course, is uh, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and the host of The West Block, uh, which is seen Sundays on Global TV. Uh, Mercedes, thanks so much for the time. Glad you to be with us today. Thanks for having me. Were you surprised by the announcement yesterday? No, uh, I wasn't in that a lot of us watching this questioned how it could be tenable for a finance minister and a prime minister who have sources uh, leaking liberally to the press to put knives at each other's backs could continue to work together. Um, That's pretty extraordinary. Uh, We knew that the prime minister's office was not happy with Bill Morneau over that $41,000 that he had not paid back to the WE charity, and more so the fact they were surprised by that information uh, just before he headed into that committee. Um, And all of the stories we've seen and the reports about how they had very different visions for Canada's future and that they did not agree on some of the pandemic response. Um, It's not uncommon for a finance minister and a prime minister to disagree on policy, to have very vigorous discussions, it is uncommon to see it spill out and get kind of personal like that. Um, so a lot of folks thought that Morneau could not continue on, that if they wanted to turn the page to put the We Charity away, they would have to find a way to deal with that. And we saw that in a very carefully choreographed press conference yesterday, um, where Mr. Morneau insisted this was all about leaving because he didn't want to run in another election, even though we don't have an election anywhere on the horizon right now, um, and wanting to go be the Secretary General suddenly of the OECD. Um, obviously, there's a lot of context around the timing on a decision of a finance minister pulling his chute and jumping 
in the middle of a financial crisis in the country. Um, that's highly unusual. But obviously, they felt that this was the, the best thing. It allowed Bill Morneau to step aside. Um, I don't think it will necessarily end the questions about the We Charity, but it will help to dull some of them that he stepped away. Uh, and in terms of the timing on it, I wouldn't say the press conference was a surprise to us. It was snap. It was out of nowhere. But we had not been able to get anybody to pick up the phone in the prime minister's office or finance. And not just we. I don't just mean us at Global. I mean the entire parliamentary press gallery all day. That's not normal. So we believed that something big was coming down the pipe. Was he pushed or did he jump? Or did he jump before he was pushed? Well, we don't know. He insists that he tendered his resignation. I think it's a bit of both. Uh, if you realize what's happening and that you're being targeted and this is likely not going to be survivable, um, you can hang on to your job and fight for it, but you're probably not going to win. I mean, ultimately, the prime minister decides who serves in his cabinet. And Bill Morneau had made it very clear he didn't want to be anything but the finance minister. So there was no sort of easy exit on this like there might have been for somewhere else where you just, you know, shuffle them into another prominent role, give them foreign affairs, switch foreign affairs and finance. Can't do that. He only wants finance. Um, so I think that... The writing was pretty much on the wall, um, and whether the Prime Minister said resign now or Bill Morneau said ultimately, no, I'm resigning now because he could see it coming, um, I can't imagine there really would have been another conclusion other than him ultimately departing as finance minister. It was sort of a question of when, not if. Mercedes, is the, the other shoe going to drop here? Is this really the beginning of a cabinet shuffle, which oftentimes uh, prime ministers will do when, when they're in hot water right now to kind of change the channel? Uh, yes, so th- this is in fact uh, going to be a cabinet shuffle. The question is sort of how big? Is it just going to be one position that is moving? Um, or is it going to be a chance for Justin Trudeau to hit the reset button on his cabinet? Um, we expect that there is a cabinet shuffle coming. We don't know precisely when. Well, we know there has to be because <laughs> there has to be a finance minister. Um, and a lot of folks think that's going to be Christian Freeland. She'll be the first woman in the job. Um, she's also kind of the minister of everything. So, hey, I guess we add another one onto her file. But she's been a real superstar for the Trudeau government. The question is, you know, when are they going to tell us this is happening? And is this a chance for Justin Trudeau to make this a broader cabinet shuffle? Are there other rules he wants to change up, knowing that we could be facing a second wave of COVID, knowing the government could be uh, under fire in the fall? Where do you want your people? Or does he keep it fairly limited and, you know, steady hand on the tiller, not pull people out of their roles and, and just switch out a couple of the key senior roles? Talking about public opinion, I know there was a Main Street poll that was released uh, just, I guess it was yesterday, uh, that actually showed the Liberals still with a a pretty significant lead over the Conservatives in public opinion, which raised a lot of questions about what kind of an impact we is actually having with the Canadian public. But even with that in mind, Mercedes, Morneau pretty much had to go, didn't he? I mean, if Trudeau wants to put we behind him... uh, and as as he did with a couple of the other scandals, uh, Morneau was was intricately involved in that. I mean, you know, as long as he was there, there was a reminder of what went wrong. So yeah, it's I, I don't see a way they could have continued on together ultimately because there was just uh, too much friction, and that friction had become public. You can sometimes overcome the frictions as long as they're private. Once it's out on the front pages of the Globe and Mail, forget about it. Um, it's very hard to come back from that. And even that statement the Prime Minister's office gave last week where I remember doing some morning show interviews and people said, oh, so like clearly he's safe now. No, it's, it's kind of like the <laughs> general manager praise the coach. <laughs> yeah. You go, uh-oh, uh, that, that usually that kind of a statement comes right before somebody gets the axe. Uh, so I think that it was it was likely inevitable that he had to go and that there just wasn't really 
another option here for for what he wanted to do. Um, and you know, there there has to be someone who shares Mr. Trudeau's vision. Ultimately, if this is not going to be the prime minister's office running things, um, then it has to be somebody who agrees with that. And if you're talking about potentially going into uh, significant debt and deficit, it has to be someone who's comfortable with that. Or someone who Mr. Trudeau trusts to hand the reins to for it not to be PMO pushing the agenda anymore. And that that's where Freeland is a very strong candidate because she has managed to take over other files that were frankly a mess and straighten them out. Whether it was NAFTA, whether it was the relationship with premiers like Jason Kenney and Doug Ford. Uh, I mean, she's got Doug Ford as her bestie now, basically. Yeah. That's pretty amazing considering where we were at a year ago with the you know federal and provincial governments of Ontario taking runs at each other. Um, so she's certainly been a superstar who might be able to take over this file. Of course, the question becomes, like, how much do you keep handing to one person in that case? Because that's an awful lot to juggle. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, it, it keeps going up. I mean, the cabinet meetings are going to be pretty much the prime minister and, and Miss Freeland. I mean, uh, there's not a whole lot of bench strength there. I mean, if if not Christia Freeland, then who else would even be up in, in the running for a position like this? I mean, the, the, this you're in the spotlight, and I, I mean, you, they're throwing you into the deep end with sharks if you're going to take over this portfolio. Yeah, it's you know, it's a uh, it's a challenging portfolio. It's a very important portfolio. You have to have somebody who really uh, understands economics and somebody who you know can can go to the prime minister and also have disagreements with him at times. Um, and you saw that, for example, between Harper and Flaherty, they had a very yeah. good relationship. Of uh, Mr. Flaherty would come in and say, like, no, sorry, uh, this is ridiculous. We're not doing this. This is why. But they, they were contained as policy debates. It didn't become sort of a personal. Uh, relationship and friction between them. So you need someone who can stand up to the Prime Minister if they need to, and to be very strong, but also someone who's on the same page and and ultimately has a good relationship with him. And I think uh, Freeland is somebody who he trusts a tremendous amount, and so that would make a lot of sense in terms of a finance minister who's going to have to not only potentially get us through a second wave of COVID-19, but figure out how we pay for all of this after, uh, which is going to be a big issue as well. Absolutely. Uh, another busy day on the Hill, of course, and uh, we do appreciate you taking the time. We'll be watching for your reporting on this later today, of course, on Global National. But thanks for taking some time with us today, Mercedes. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Mercedes Stevenson, of course, Ottawa Bureau Chief with Global News. And uh, the West Block on Sunday's course on Global. I guess what they're going to be talking about. Uh, it could be a cabinet shuffle. I mean, that's a very valid point. Usually you don't just see a one-off in situations like this. And because of the the turmoil that was caused from we uh, and, and some of the problems going on with deficit, uh, and the threat, of course, from uh, Mr. Blanchett to, to try to take down the government. Uh, a cabinet shuffle is usually a, a, a tactic that most prime ministers would do in a situation like this. Uh, shuffle things around, give other people different responsibilities, and, and basically give the pundits something else to talk about besides the stuff they've been talking about over the last couple of days. It's, it's politics, certainly. Uh, and as to whether or not it's going to be effective, well, who's to say in situations like this? But uh, Mr. Morneau was drawing an awful lot of the heat and uh, the government doesn't need that kind of heat right now. The Prime Minister, obviously, uh, I think is going to lean on Christia Freeland, and, and Mercedes is absolutely right. That's an awful lot of responsibility, since she seems to be the go-to person uh, for the Trudeau government, whether it was uh, the NAFTA deal that she negotiated or, as Mercedes mentioned, uh, smoothing the waters between uh, a couple of the uh, rather in, uh, problematic provinces, I guess, for this government, they being, of course, Alberta and Ontario. And uh, we have heard uh, Premier Ford here talking in glowing terms about Christy Freeland. Uh, Jason Kenney and Miss Freeland seem to get along pretty well, too. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We do apologize for technical problems. We have crews working on them right now to try to get, a, get us back up to full speed. But uh, in the meantime, 
uh, we will soldier on. Uh, lots going on here, especially to do with our education system and COVID-19. Back to school, that's uh, the order and cancel from everybody here from the provincial government. And uh, well, are parents going to carry on with this? Are, are they concerned about this? Manny Figueroa is the Director of Education for the Hamilton uh, District Board of Education, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Manny, thank you so much for the time. appreciate you joining in and hopping on today. Uh, good morning, Bill. Hopefully you can hear me well. We can. Thanks very much. Yeah, we're, we're soldiering on here. We're going to get through this together, uh, which is what we've been saying, I guess, for the last six months, isn't it? So we're, we'll just keep doing what we're doing. I uh, wanted to get your reaction to uh, that, the Leger poll, Manny. I want to also talk a little bit about but about the uh, the investigations going on, about the accusations. We'll get to that in a minute. But the Leger poll that I'm sure you've seen here says 66% of parents that were polled are worried about sending their kids back to school. Uh, but 63% said they're going to send them anyway, but they're concerned that if something happens, uh, how the board is going to respond to this. What can the board do to to assuage those concerns? Uh, so I, I, I mean, I, as a parent, I, I'm not surprised. And I, I wouldn't say that I wouldn't be surprised that 100% of parents aren't somewhat concerned at some level because this is unprecedented time. Uh, you know, I think what's important for all boards to look at is that um, – we are going to put in the, safe, the, the training and the safety protocols that are necessary um, uh, it, before students come in on September 8th. So as we know, we put three PA days, professional activity days, prior, and we're having our principals come in even earlier because we know the importance um, that the work doesn't happen at the, at the district office. It happens at a school level. So public health has been great in terms of developing protocols and procedures. Our staff have been working tirelessly this summer um, to order PPEs, masks, hand sanitizer, hand sanitizer stations, and signs. So we should expect what we've expected when we've entered into other sectors, although it's a very different um, environment. Schools are social, right? We're yeah. anti-social distance. That's, so you're going to see a different learning environment, uh, desks that are that are spaced, you're going to see a lot of signage, you're going to see, um, you're not going to see school-wide recess breaks or nutrition breaks. We need to stagger those breaks. Um, and we're going to have to do a lot of September startup training. So a lot of time is going to be spent uh, with our training our educators the first three PA days, but then we're going to invest the time with our kids because this is new for our kids, new for their environment. We know a lot of parents have been doing already work at home, having students wear masks, washing their hands. So a lot of that work is done, but we have to reinforce that in, in our uh, learning environment. And we are working on some activities. We can't underestimate that people will be anxious. So we're developing some activities we call the first 30 days of, of mental health activities to work on an activity each day, not only around the training, but around feeling comfortable uh, in the space and, and finding your voice if you're feeling uncomfortable. So we're committed uh, to this. And I think what's going to be very important, parents have been asking us, and we're waiting from the ministry, is we're developing a, uh, the province wants a consistent approach to breakout management. So if there is someone who might have symptoms, uh, what's that process to get tested? What's that process to be self-isolated? And we need consistency across our sector, across the province. And parents are asking that. Uh, we were told by the ministry to expect that from the Ministry of Education, Ministry of Health, um, by this week. Although our staff has been working with our local public health on a draft one, um, but we want to make sure it's aligned and consistent with what the, what the ministry expects. 
and it can't be a one-size-fits-all, I guess, either. By the way, I just want to interject here that uh, uh, for our listeners on 980 CFL in London, uh, we also reached out to the Thames Valley uh, Board of Education to try to get their input into this. And uh, as of 10 o'clock, they had not responded to us, but uh, we'll try to get them a little bit later on. Uh, but to that point, though, Manny, uh, you know, what's good for Hamilton may not be good for London. It depends on, on how COVID affected those communities and I guess uh, what, what the, the physical schools are going to be looking like and, and the board's approach to this. Yeah, yeah. well, there's going to be some differentiation, but what I would dispute is that we need to be consistent if there's a potential case or someone experiencing symptoms. That we need to make sure that the public health protocols are consistent across uh, the province because um, people need to know and, and parents are asking that for that information as well. We started our pre-registration um, uh, as of yesterday and we've extended it until uh, till Tuesday uh, afternoon in the terms of parents making a choice to engage and return to school in the physical space or to choose um, a full remote learning uh, and and it will be will be assigning different teachers to those uh, remote classrooms. So that's a huge step. And we're, we were predicting about 15% of parents may choose remote, but in conversations with other districts who have begun this process, it, uh, they're saying that they're looking more at 20% or higher of parents who may be choosing remote learning, at least to start off uh, the school year. Yeah, and I know you, I'm trying to extrapolate from the numbers that the, the Leger poll said. I mean, you know, for, 63% of the parents that were polled here saying they are going to send their kids. Uh, I don't necessarily think you're going to uh, automatically assume that the, the, the rest of them aren't going to. I mean, there's a, a variety of answers here. But is is there a number in, in the back of your head, Manny, that says, whoa, this is just not enough kids coming back here. We have a problem. Well, you know, um, yeah, it, it, that's a great question. And I've been saying the complexity of this work. I said we have to balance, first of all, Safety is our first guiding principle around public health. But we're also trying to balance, as you've heard sick kids speak, around the development of a child. So what are the impacts of, especially in the early years, if children aren't socialized in schools, what's the greater impact around learning, socialization, and, as we know from families, the economy. If if, if we're not open, they cannot return. Um, we're we're going to commit because we will have we're in a process right now. Once we have that data uh, bill, we are going to be um, working through a staffing process in August, uh, which means we have to commit our current resource of teachers. So if a school is down 20% of enrollment, um, it's not ideal. But we're going to have to reallocate staff to teach virtual classrooms full time, um, remote classrooms, and so. But we, know, we hope that we're going to create intervals throughout the year where people can sort of revisit that decision. And I know some people might feel more comfortable once they see the protocols in place, the practice in place. Um, so we're hoping it's 15 um, uh, to 20% range that, that choose remote is sort of what we're planning for. But we have to be prepared, and we are prepared if that number does go higher at the beginning. In that circumstance, uh I, I guess to, to try to reassure those parents, and, and you know, I, I like your idea of having on and off ramps to, through this process. Others that say, "Yeah, I want to rethink this. Maybe, maybe we do want to send the child back into the classroom situation." But I think one of the key factors that I've heard from parents, and I'm sure you have too, Manny, 
is what is the protocol if, in fact, there's a positive case? Uh, you know, uh, they need to know up front what's going to be happening. I know that you, as a board, have to have that knowledge, of course, and make those determinations. But the parents have to know absolutely that if this happens, this is how the board is going to react. Yeah, and, and that's the conversation that's been happening with the ministry. Um, one area uh, the ministry has been clear with us is they want consistency in that. We have a draft protocol been working with public health with the four school boards that are within Hamilton, um, the French board as well. Uh, if we don't get that direction as of this week, we told we would, we are going to make our draft protocol available to our community this week, knowing that it might be revised once we get the ministry guide that says this is how um, these are some of the nuances, but absolutely. And it's more than just a breakout. It's even if symptoms, if someone is experiencing symptoms, what's that first step? Um, um, and in the guide, it talks about a place where people can isolate before parents pick them up and then testing. And then if, if someone is tested, um, if, the, if the result comes back negative versus positive, what's that time frame that, that they need to self-isolate? And in addition, in the cohorting is a very important piece. As you know, students staying in the same class with the same students uh, will be an important piece because then if, if there is a positive case, then uh, those who are involved will need to self-isolate or quarantine for a period of time. So all that's been worked on in draft, um, but we really do need the, the ministry um, uh, provincial guide that they are expecting all boards to use. So we hope once that's received, we were told by this week, we can then um, map that over the one we've been working with our local public health. And if there's any minor revisions we need to make, we need to do that. But I know parents want that. They want to see it because they want to know how are we potentially managing that. And that has to get out this week. That is pressing right now. Reassuring, and, and I'm sure more to come on this, of course, as, as that policy has become solidified. Got a couple of minutes left here. We're talking with Manny Figueredo, Director of Education for the Hamilton Board of Education. Uh, we're told that uh, the uh, investigation uh, into the allegations of racism uh, all on the board, of course, that were made some time ago, uh, that investigation's already begun. Maybe you could bring us up to speed on what's happening there, Manny. Uh, yes, thanks, Bill. Um, as you saw, the um, Arlene Huggins has been hired um, to be the independent um, firm lawyer who individual who's going to be investigating and that process has begun and the first part of that process is to meet with um, the student trustee who um, you know made some uh, serious allegations that need to be taken seriously so that that conversation has begun uh, because the specifics of who what where and when need to begin so um, our uh, Arlene has begun that process as of uh, yesterday and then as more information comes, then you can see in the press release she'll be speaking, when she knows that information, she will be speaking to Board of Trustees and also see senior members. And, you know, my deepest reflection upon this is putting this isolated incident aside. I think as leaders in education, we all have to ask ourselves one critical question. I've been asking that of myself is, is um why? Why does it have to come, not just this incident, but any incident where, where students' uh, voices may not be heard? And how do we as leaders really start thinking about what bias ex uh, exists in our institutions? And uh, I've been really reflecting upon this as, 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 as the director of HWDSB. I've heard HWDSB kids need help over the years. 
and challenging myself and my team to think about, you know, what will we tolerate and not tolerate moving forward? In our profession, we always talk about the ethical standards of trust, respect, integrity, and care. If these students are feeling this way, we need to ask ourselves why, what systemic issues are getting in the way. And you're going to see a commitment from me and the senior team this year to start thinking about this deeply. If we're really committed to all students achieving their potential and achieving outcomes, we have to look seriously at the systemic barriers that we may be creating consciously or unconsciously that is getting in the way. And I'll talk about a couple examples. Got, um, yeah, I've got about a minute uh, left here. Go ahead. Okay. I think what's really important for us, Bill, um, we looked at, um, we just had a hiring equity audit done prior to this. Our demographics have changed. About 20% racialized black in Hamilton. And our staff does not reflect that. Over the last year, our hires started to reflect about 18 to 19%. But historically, we're at 8 9%. That's a systemic challenge, and our audit has been done, and we're going to be making that public around our hiring practices um, so students can see themselves reflected in the adults in front of them. That's, that's a key piece. And the other key piece is we need to look seriously is if a student had to resort to that type of um, uh, come public with an allegation, what's the process that we have? Why did they feel they could trust us to come to us? So we are going to be seriously looking at our complaint process, especially around issues of equity and human rights, and make it and make very visible what that complaint process may be if the traditional one is not working for our students. Uh, lots to come on this, as you mentioned, the, the investigation just underway this week, so I'm sure we'll talk more about this in the future. Manny, again, uh, thanks so much for taking the time with us. We'll stay in touch. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Okay, Manny Figueredo, Director of Education for the uh, Hamilton Board of Education. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Got a lot to talk about here, including uh, our attitudes towards COVID-19. A survey that was done by the Angus Reid Institute indicates that, uh, well, one in five of us uh, that were surveyed anyway are COVID spreaders. Uh, uh, But on the other hand, I guess the good news here is uh, that an awful lot of us, the majority, about 47%, were infection players when it comes to whether or not we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, and I get the fact that there's a lot of just people that are just getting sick and tired of the whole routine right now. Uh, but health experts keep telling us that doesn't mean it's time to give up. I want to bring Allison Thompson into the uh, conversation. Allison is an associate professor of pharmaceutical science uh, and a professor of public health services and public health sciences at the uh, Dalai Lana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Uh, Allison, thank you so much for the time. Good to talk with you again today. Good to talk to you. Uh, when I look at these statistics, and it's not troubling uh, that that's 20% of the people are saying, like, we're just tired, we're not going to do this stuff anymore. Uh, I understand this whole thing about COVID fatigue, but uh, I guess we have to remind ourselves from time to time that, uh, that we have not beat this virus yet. We've, we might have tamed it to a certain extent, but uh, it could rear its ugly head again pretty quickly. Absolutely, and I think that you know what we're seeing in uh, in lots of parts of the communities that we live in is that people are are you know starting to think that well the worst never happened and you know maybe maybe the risk isn't as great as it as it really you know they said it was going to be and and we're just tired of having our individual liberty impinged upon. Yeah, and we've seen that. I mean, some of the, the, the social media posts I've seen about this just think that, that, I mean, they're the conspiracy theorists that think this whole thing is just a big government scam. But uh, I think most of us, and the overwhelming majority of us, have taken this seriously. 
And, and I, I guess as you have reminded us in past discussions, Allison, uh, the reason why uh, the virus maybe didn't have the same impact that, uh, that we thought it would or that it did in other areas is because the vast majority of us did follow the protocol. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, that's the perpetual problem for public health is that when they do their job right, we just don't see this big disaster coming that, that everybody said was coming. And so um, it is a bit of a paradox for public health to have to convince people to continue doing what they're doing um, when it looks like there is no threat out there anymore. But we've seen, and uh, here in the Hamilton area, in London, we've seen in just about every city, uh, just as we kind of get ourselves settled in and say, I think we've got this thing under control, uh, we'll see a spike. Not a major spike, but a spike nonetheless, which I think is probably serving as a reminder uh, that if we do let our guard down, uh, you know, this could get problematic. Absolutely. And and this is a, a very opportunistic virus. You know, it's 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 definitely still out there. And I think it's just part of human psychology, too, that it's very hard to remain in that sort of hypervigilant state for long periods of time without it just feeling like the new normal. And, uh, you know, I think we forget that we are still in the public health emergency. Well, and I understand that. And I've seen this happening and heard of it from friends over the last little while. I mean, we were pretty diligent, I guess, uh, you know, in the early part of the summer about staying within our bubble, uh, maybe expanding it a little bit. But uh, now I'm, I'm seeing an awful lot more of, uh, well, you know, it's, what's it going to hurt? You know, let's, let's, let's have a barbecue and let's have eight or nine people over. Uh, and, and we're not supposed to. We know that. Uh, there are people that, you know, we don't necessarily see on a regular basis. They're not part of our bubble. But we're, we we seem to be just letting our guard down right now, and and the, the right, I don't I don't understand really from that standpoint, Allison, because there aren't really any numbers that validate that sort of activity. Yeah, and I think you know what's really going to be a challenge is when uh, when kids go back to school, that bubbling is really going to become obsolete because the kids aren't going to be contained to ten families, you know, like so so that. Um, bubbling that we're doing now is going to come to an end once school starts again. And the the importance of keeping that going until the very last moment possible to keep the numbers down before those schools open again is going to be really important. And so it's, it is distressing to see that that a lot of the the younger people in the population are are disregarding uh, the the effort to get those numbers as low as possible before school starts. Allison, are you concerned about the impact of school openings and what it might have on, on these numbers? Absolutely. And I think that, that, you know, we aren't seeing the kind of resources being put towards the appropriate public health measures that we know will work in schools. Um, at least in Ontario here, you know, we've still got very overcrowded classrooms that physical distancing will be impossible in and you know so the physical distancing piece is being removed from the strategy by the Ontario government and that's a real concern for a lot of parents which will have a very big impact on the economy as more parents elect to keep their kids home uh, in online learning you know that takes one parent out of the workforce so this is going to be a real challenge and and you know it, it poses a serious risk for public health because we've also got influenza on the horizon as well. It's interesting. I was uh, talking, I'm sure you saw the same study that uh, happened in Australia over the last two or three months. Uh, 
and uh, because they're going through their winter, of course, reverse seasons. You know, as we're going through a hot summer here in, in Ontario and in Canada, uh, they're just coming out of their winter, and they've gone through their flu season. And and you know, we've had these concerns, and uh, you've talked about this on our program a number of times too about the impact that of the double whammy, so to speak, that the influenza mm-hmm. plus COVID will have. Uh, the numbers for COVID uh, are still problematic in Australia, but what surprised them in, in the survey that I saw was that actually. Uh, the influenza impact was less than they thought it was going to be. And I, I, I'm assuming that's because people were following these protocols. I mean, what, what could c- still control COVID will also control the influenza uh, problem every year, too. If you do social distance and if you wear face masks, the chances of spreading that uh, would be, le- I would think, in, not, not insignificant, but it is going to lessen the numbers, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. And and we did see that here in Ontario when um in healthcare institutions in Toronto, there was a policy where healthcare workers had to get vaccinated uh, against influenza or wear a mask. And the year that they first rolled that out, the vaccine was actually not effective. Uh, it was a very bad match with the strains that were actually circulating. And so the masking itself was probably responsible for for more than the vaccine was in terms of providing protection against influenza. So masking, we know, does work for influenza transmission. So absolutely, we'll see that. What's different, though, with influenza is that we do know that children are major vectors of of influenza spread. So um, they are much more likely to spread influenza than they are uh, this uh, COVID vaccine, or sorry, COVID virus. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to to the influenza numbers here. Absolutely. And the schools uh, and the school environment, I guess, is really what's what's concerning an awful lot of people right now because of, of, of as you say, the, which governments tend to do kind of cherry pick. Okay, we can do this, but we're not going to do that one. And, and social distancing is the one that bothers me. I, the sanitization, I can get to a point. I'm sure they can put hand sanitizer in the classrooms and encourage the, the students to use them on a regular basis, and and that solves part of the problem. But I, I, you know, just to use an example, I mean, when you go into a pharmacy or a grocery store. We're social distancing when we're standing in line before we get to the cashier. Uh, but before we can even approach the cashier, they have to scrub down the the counter from the the, the customer before that. Uh, and I'm wondering about you know we don't know what the virus is going to do or how the virus is going to live on certain substances. But what are they going to do about cleaning classrooms on a regular basis? I'm not so sure they've even addressed that yet. Yeah, I think you know I think that the spread through services is a concern. You know, I think the the major problem is that children are just you know, anyone who's had a kid or seen them, they're not great at uh, following these public health measures. You know, they, they bump into each other all the time. You know, we're going to be seeing a lot of policing of by by teachers of, you know, don't use your mask as a slingshot, Johnny. You know, like this kind of stuff. Like, it's just really, really difficult to, to um, get them to comply with, you know, don't touch your face, don't touch as many surfaces as maybe you normally would, don't take your mask off, don't rub your eyes. So removing physical distancing as one of the tools by keeping class sizes large just makes no sense to me because of the the fact that these these guys are just not old enough to be able to comply with the other public health measures that we're putting in place, like masks and reducing the, the touching of surfaces and things like that. So it is very hard to understand the reluctance there uh, to to put the money into the system to get the class sizes down, which, you know, 
I think that any education expert would tell you is a good idea from an education perspective as well. Well, and that, that's the, the, the disconnect that I see here, too. You know, restaurants in phase three now, restaurants are open again, too. A restaurant that might have had a, a capacity of 60 people is now probably going to be allowed to have, what, 20, 25 people as, as guests uh, because they're concerned about the, the social distancing. But they don't seem to take, have that same concern for schools. And, and that's that's problematic, I think. Yeah, it's hugely problematic. And, you know, to be sure, it's a, it's a logistical nightmare to have to hire, you know, 2,000 new teachers and find more classrooms for, for students. Um, you know, I'm not saying that that's an easy fix, but I think it's what we have to do. Otherwise, we're going to see, you know, half the workforce is going to be, you know, at home again, um, taking care of six kids. We're going to see lots of teachers um, fall ill. We know that that at least um, a quarter of the teachers are over 50 years old um, and therefore at high risk. So, you know, there's there's a lot of reasons to do this and, and to get it right the first time because not just the health costs, but the economic costs will be huge if we've got to shut schools down again. Allison, I want to crystal ball a little bit for us, if you could, because uh, the goal here, I guess the light that we see at the end of the tunnel here is, is the vaccine. And we've had some positive news over the last couple of weeks about how that's progressing, although I think people probably misinterpreted a lot of that. It's like, ah, it's, it's, it's going to be here soon. I, I, it's probably still going to be at least springtime, I think, of 2021 from, from the experts we've talked to about this. Uh, but that doesn't mean this is over if we develop a vaccine, does it? I mean, there's, COVID's still going to be there. and it, with, I, I can't see us eradicating it with one dose of vaccine for everybody. Yeah, I think I think a lot of that is is remains to be seen, and I think that one of the good things um, to come out of the research that's been done so far is that um, we are seeing from some studies on people's um, immunity status that maybe there are um, you know that we won't need as many people to be immune to slow the spread as we would with some other viruses, so we can actually slowed the transmission of the virus down quite significantly uh, without having to vaccinate as many people as we thought we might have to. So so that's a positive uh, thing to come out of that. So, you know, part of it will be, you know, is it a safe, is it a, an effective vaccine, but also how many really people are going to be willing to get a vaccine that's got no long-term safety and effectiveness data? Um, that's going to be a hard sell for some people, too. On the other hand, you got to balance the risks of, of a vaccine against the risk of getting, getting the virus. So it's going to be interesting to see how many people will actually get, get access to that. And then there are the, the bottlenecks in terms of production and distribution of that vaccine as well. So I think, I think, you know, we may be dealing with this into the next school year. Uh, that's interesting. And with that in mind, uh, we, have to get our heads around the fact that uh, the the social protocols that we're doing here, the masking and, and the social distancing, and of course the the hand sanitizing, uh, is going to be with us, I would think, for some time to come. Then, oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, and you know, it, it'll be interesting to see whether any long term changes happen, um, because I think, as you were saying earlier, I think we will see um, a reduction in the number of influenza cases. As well, and you know that's a pandemic that happens every single year, and thousands of people die from influenza, and we never really have the same kind of response um, from public health or from the public that 
we do to this this virus. So we may be persuaded that these are just some some routines that we've adopted may just be better off staying in place because of other viruses that that do kill a lot of people every year. What would have to happen uh, for us for us to put the brakes on this phase three of the of the reopening? Uh, what would the numbers have to look like for for public health to to go to the government and say, uh, let's let's just hit the pause button here. Maybe it's time to start shutting things down again. I'm not sure about the exact numbers that we would be looking at, but what we would be looking for is some kind of sustained community transmission again. And so uh-huh. while we've got lower numbers now, we'll, we would you know we'd be seeing spikes in numbers. Um, that are very widespread. So, you know, at the moment, I think we're we're pretty well equipped to contain any spike in numbers that's that's locally contained. But if it starts to spread beyond, you know, uh, one or two communities uh, in Ontario, we would want to have a, a serious conversation about, you know, how people are are being allowed to move around the province or between provinces again, and you know, whether whether or not we're gonna ask people to shelter in place again because it it doesn't take much to get it out of control again and so that's why it's really important that public health can stay on top of the contact tracing and and quarantine well when we've talked with our local uh, medical officer of health here in the hamilton area uh, one of the things she kept referring to even back in the dark days in the early days of, of the, the virus and the shutdown was uh, the rate of, of of spread you know how often does it double how how many days does it take uh, mm-hmm. And it, it was scary at times. I mean, we seem to have that under control right now. Is is that a statistic you'd be looking at to see qu- how quickly those those cases double? Yeah, exactly. So the growth would be exponential if it was starting to get out of control again. And so, you know, if you see it doubling every couple of days, then you're starting to get really worried again. And that that's not happening right now. But the anticipation with the going of the school year and with the influenza uh, coming up in September, that, uh, that it seems to me as if as bad as as the last six months have been, this uh, September to December period uh, is, I, I would think, pivotal here. Yeah, absolutely, and and you know, making sure that those um, public health nurses that are being assigned to schools now uh, are able to keep on top of things, and I don't think we know yet what the protocol will be if you know, a kid shows up with respiratory illness symptoms, like do they shut the whole school down? Do they just do contact tracing? Do they test everybody? We just, we haven't heard, you know, what the plan is for containing um, the any kind of outbreak within a school setting. So that's going to be really important too, to see how that unfolds and whether or not they're aggressively on top of those cases. Well, the fact that we don't have that information or the government hasn't announced it or given a, a standard protocol here, uh, might explain why the last survey that we talked about here, 63% of the parents are very concerned about sending their kids back because they don't know what if, you know, if, if that should occur, how are they going to respond and is their child still going to be safe? Yeah, and I think it's very hard for people to say they're going to be able to return to work full time uh, and then, you know, have to pivot and and start working from home again on on like a moment's notice. And so I think a lot of people are just taking the safer route and saying, okay, well, I'm just going to let my employer know that I can't return to work. So you've got a lot of working moms not returning to work if they've um, stepped out of workplace or lost their jobs because of COVID-19. So there's a real disproportionate impact on working mothers uh, because of this, this 
ambiguity around the school system and, and what it's going to look like. And so I think, you know, in many ways, the one of the groups who are going to be hardest hit by not getting this situation sorted out in the schools is, is working mothers. Professor Allison Thompson, uh, Allison, as always, thank you so much for your insight into this. Uh, if nothing else, I think this uh, just reinforces uh, what you've always been saying, that we have to stick to the protocol, the social distancing, the masking, and, and the hand hygiene on this. And uh, we'll see what these numbers look like. Uh, we'll talk, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Thank you for joining us today, though. My pleasure. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.